Hey everybody, I'm Greg Soul, and this is Why Am I, a podcast where I talk to interesting people and try and trace a path to where they find themselves today. My guest this go around is Tawny Laura. She is a child of two worlds, I would say. One is a rock and roll California kid, and uh, the other is a journalist from my ultra-conservative hometown of Waco, Texas. Somewhere in all of it, she lost herself in the bar scene and honestly didn't find her way back out and back to writing until she literally dropped everything and moved to New York City without knowing a soul there. Pretty crazy. She's uh, now the proud parent of a new book called Dry Humping, which you should go and pre-order, or if this is later and you're listening to this, you should just go and purchase it. Uh, audiobooks soon to come as well. And she is also the podcast host of Sobriety Rocks. I'm willing to bet you can tell what it's about from the title. Anyway, I love seeing this kid spread her wings. And I hope you enjoy this chat with Tawny. Tawny, thank you for joining me on the Why Am I podcast. Hola, so good to be here. Good to see you again. So many greetings at once. I don't know which one to respond to. Yeah, All of them. <laughs> oh my goodness. So... I don't usually give any preamble, but I'm going to say a little thing here. Um, you and I go way back and way back. I grew up in Hewitt, and uh, you were kicking around in that part of the, the neighborhood. But I wanted to tell you a little story in the beginning. So uh, my wife, Christy, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, when we had our second kid, she went to the hospital, almost didn't come out, right? It was mm. really rough. Uh, blood clot in her leg, had to learn to walk again. She's a badass and unstoppable so of course she's kicking around doing everything like a like a normal person now but part of her rehab is she had to figure out something to like get her moving again so she started going to the gym she tried a bunch of stuff none of it really stuck she tried zoom but it was boring um she didn't like any of the instructors they just i don't know just wasn't doing it you know and then we happened to be in hewitt back right where our family lives and we went to your gym to one of your classes and that was, what do you call that? A watershed moment, inflection point for her. She said, Aww. this is what I, this is what I want. She's like, I want to do this every day um, because it is so much fun. It is such a blast, but there's nothing like it. So right after your first class she did with you, she said, all right, I'm going to become an instructor oh. and I'm going to teach this stuff. So literally... That is what has changed the entire trajectory and why she is like a fitness instructor and all that stuff. So if uh, nothing, little Tani from Waco has made such a huge impact on our family and our happiness and well-being. And I, I wanted to share that story with you before we got started. Thank you. That I that is that is the coolest thing, honestly, the coolest thing to hear. And I I had a similar experience when I took my first Zumba class. I was like, this is what I've been missing. And I became an instructor, you know, like it was such a huge part of my life. And I met so many cool people like you, you know, you guys came. We had like our own little community, like our own little Zumba family. And um, we all came, we all come from different parts of walks of life and different came from different parts of Waco, but we came together to exercise and have fun and just kind of forget all the shit going on out outside. And it was just a, re a really special time. And um, I remember I always loved that you came with Christy, <laughs> you know, because I, so many men just would not. I mean, you know, toxic masculinity has historically been a thing. Um, 
And you were just like, no, my wife loves this and I'm going to come. And you must have had fun, too. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Like, I, <laughs> you know, and it like it all it it gave me hope to see. I was like, wow, like Christy found a guy who's like really sweet. He's going to do he does this kind of stuff with her. And that I had never seen a a man show up for, like for his wife like that before. So like <laughs> that meant a lot to me. And I, I, you know, we'll get to my sobriety journey, but like I met my partner in sobriety and he shows up for me and, you know, it, um, so thank you for showing me like what a good guy looks like. <laughs> well, uh, I like to say I'm abnormal, uh, as I've, as I've progressed in life, I've learned Even... that my brain doesn't operate like most people. So it's like, eh, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but I think it's working the way that it should. I think it it works in um, it benefits me a lot in many ways. I will, mm-hmm. I will say that. But yeah, let's uh, let's let's uh, let's do my my traditional intro. Um, in that, whenever I run into somebody, I like to and believe it or not, I do this in real life, and I find out who my people are pretty quick. And I say, you know, once I learn their name, we set, chat for a second. I say, well, who are you? I just I just love saying that. Tell me who you are. Who are you? So, Tawny, who are you? Well, because I'm promoting a book, I will say I am the sober sexpert, author of Dry Humping, a guide to dating, relating, and hooking up without the booze. Dang. Look at that. Just rolled right off your tongue. It's like it's like <laughs> almost like you've practiced that a couple times. <laughs> so you are an author, dude. Like when I met you, little Tawny shaking her stuff. I never... <laughs> I didn't, I, author wasn't something that immediately popped to mind, which I think is so cool. Was that like, where did author come from? Like at what point in your journey through life did that show up? You know, so actually you can see behind me. So there's my book cover, but framing it is these two blue, um, also framed pictures. Um, they are newspaper clippings from the Waco Trib when I wrote for the local, I wrote for our local newspaper, the Waco Trib, when I was 14 years old. And I wrote what I now know are op-eds. I did not know. I just based, like, they were doing a call for um, teen contributors, and I applied, and I I got it. And I, I wrote about very controversial topics, like legalizing cannabis and same-sex marriage and you know, at 14 years old in Waco, Texas in the year 2000. So, uh, no, I, I got, I, I got a lot of literal hate mail, um, that I still have to this day. Oh, that's Um, but the reason I, I backtrack so far is because around 14 is when I began to self-medicate with drugs and alcohol and I Hmm. stopped writing. Hmm. And when I was, I, I will, I would honestly say Zumba saved my life because it gave me something positive and a some like positive energy, positive community outside of bartending. It gave me a community, something to do. It gave me confidence. It let, let me be creative. Yeah. You know, I got so much out of it. I was still drinking very heavily when I was a Zumba instructor. Um, but it was the big be- i think it was the beginning of getting getting healthier you know 
And I don't I don't know that I would have ever gotten sober if I didn't find fitness first. And for me, that came through Zumba. Um, but ultimately, you know, I share all of that because I was writing when I was 14 and, and younger. You know, I was always writing. And then, you know, something really traumatic happened to me and I started to self-medicate with drugs and alcohol. And I did that from 15 to 29, <laughs> mm. you know, and then um, then I got back to writing. And so it's like when I was teaching Zumba, writing was not part of my life at all. But it was that was how that was my creative outlet at right. the time, you know? Yeah, I 100% understand what you mean. So like you're writing at 14 and so... I'm 14 year old Tani. I'm writing. I really enjoy that. What gives me the gumption to <laughs> decide I'm going to write for the newspaper? Like all these strangers are going to be reading my stuff. Yeah. You know, I I think the gumption comes from, you know, my mom and I were originally from Northern California and we moved to Waco when I was eight and my dad stayed in Northern California. So I I grew up back and forth. Like I went back, uh -huh. I was in Texas and Waco, Texas and Waco, Texas and California a lot. Um, so I think there was something about, you know, and my dad's a heavy metal musician. So I, <laughs> I, I knew that that was an option. A lot of people growing up in Waco don't know that that, that, that lifestyle is an option. Um, and his, his mom, my grandmother, was an artist, a painter. So I knew I was surrounded by creativity and by art, luckily. Um, I didn't have any interest in making music or painting, but for mm. me it was writing. And um, and I think, you know, you've you've met my mom. <laughs> you did Zumba with my mom. Um, she's a very outspoken uh woman. And so it's like it's interesting. I I was raised in Waco, Texas by a strong, opinionated feminist mom, <laughs> you know? So it was this very interesting dichotomy. And I think all of that resulted in the gumption that you're talking about of, well, my mom shares her opinions on things. I guess I can do that too. <laughs> yeah, and, and for people listening, Waco is a very, I would say a conservative bastion. So strong, opinionated females aren't yes they aren't easy to come by in that area so yeah uh, the fact that you also share some of those qualities maybe uh maybe not as loud and in your face as your mom perhaps but you <laughs> just still different have i guess <laughs> and you know like <laughs> i think i am my my partner nick he he says that like i am a, a a true balance of like all of the good qualities of both of my parents <laughs> well when you were writing did your did your parents kind of foster that? Was that like encouraged or was that just something you were like, I'm going to do this thing? Yeah. Yeah. They both were, um, you know, my time in California, I would spend every summer with my dad and he lived in um, we were in northern California and um, on the beach. And I this is when the movie Harriet the Spy came out and I was I I I became Tawny the Spy and I was like all like. <laughs> running around Alameda with my composition notebook in a raincoat, just taking notes like so-and-so's wearing this. So-and-so's talking about like, <laughs> I don't know. I would pay big money to see what those notebooks actually said. Um, but my, and I don't remember this, but my dad said that I have um, 
I had a sign on my door that said, uh, do not disturb Tawny the spy at work. <laughs> so he, you know, and he, he indulged me and, and he also like, he went like one summer, he and I actually wrote a song together and little eight-year-old me recording vocals. Like it was like, you're allowed to have a bad voice and it's cute when you're eight. I couldn't, we couldn't do that today. <laughs> Um, but that was so like I was always surrounded by art, like I was saying. And then um, my mom was obviously very supportive of me um, using my voice. You know, she encouraged me. I was like, I want to apply for this. What do you think? And I I applied and I got it. And I was also doing, you know, in high school, I was doing broadcast journalism, doing the morning announcements. And I was just I was always interested in finding the story, you know, that's interesting. You know, you were something that popped in my head as you were saying your dad always indulged you. And I was thinking somebody who's like in a heavy metal band probably is still somewhat in touch with that childlike part of themselves. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure he could. I, cause I, I've noticed as I age, that's like being able to connect with my kids on like that imaginative level sort of has drifted away from me. And that's it makes me mm. feel sad sometimes thinking about it. Maybe you should start playing heavy metal music. You think so? <laughs> I, th I think that's that's what we're getting at here. I think this is the segue of you becoming a thrash metal bass player. I don't know if you if you look at the, you know, the aesthetic I rock at right now. Maybe playing banjo in like a, you know, a country band would be more aligned with, or maybe like swing music or something with this mustache. It's kind of maybe like a banjo swing metal hybrid. I I. I appreciate your enthusiasm <laughs> towards it. I really don't think. I so. think. I, I, I think that. I think that's ska, actually. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, we've definitely gone the wrong direction. Then let's uh, <laughs> let's let's pull off where that nose dive. Oh my gosh! No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. If you like ska, you like ska. You know, I'm not gonna yuck on your yum. There we go. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's 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 fine. You can continue to live in 1997 as long as you like. Um, so <laughs> you're doing all this writing. Some stuff shifts for you, and I. This sounds like yeah. We earlier talked about an inflection point. I guess this would be an inflection point for you. So, you yeah started numbing. I guess I did. Yeah, I I went through some shit and I started self medicating, numbing. You know, mm. I hadn't, I didn't have the language, the vocabulary, the emotional regulation. I didn't know what the hell I was feeling. Yeah, you're a kid. Um, when I was, yeah, I was a kid, you know, and um, my parents, as supportive as they were, they were also, they had me when they were very young and they hadn't quite worked through their shit yet. So um, I was not in the best environment and self-medicating is, is what got me through. So um, now, now I know um, exactly what was going on. I know that I was experiencing, you know, PTSD, depression, anxiety. And, and of course, I was smoking a bunch of weed and drinking and popping pills. Like, of, of course, I did that. Like, I was desperate to just escape. Um, now I have that language. Now I have those tools. And I ultimately, that's why I got back into writing when I quit drinking was because I really wanted to... Um, create those tools that I wish I had when I I didn't even know that I wanted them or that I needed them you know so 
Um, and we're in a different landscape now where, you know, now 14 year olds can get on Instagram and read about anxiety and depression. That mm. was not what was happening in 2000. Um, so yeah, that's really how I, uh, I, you know, turned a whole bunch of lemons <laughs> into lemonade, if you will. Um, and it's, it's been, um, November will be eight years that I've been alcohol free and in recovery. So that's solid. But your yeah. your journey and and I think you could say this of most people is not a linear path. It wasn't, you know, I'll go to A, then B, then C. It sounds like it was something meandering. So we were in Waco, like and I I escaped, right? It's got a certain amount of gravity and it took me a couple of orbits to actually, you know, that's <laughs> real. What, what did that achieve? Escape velocity or whatever. Get nerdy on <laughs> yep. you. Uh, but you, you just basically m dropped the mic and you picked up and you moved your ass to New York City, right? I literally bought a one-way ticket to New York. That's crazy. How and does, where were I, you at, like in your head? How does that get there? I didn't know a single person. I, Kidding I me? don't even, no. I, but you know what I did? So I, after I graduated college and I moved to the Woodlands, you know, okay. like, so, um, northern north, of Houston. Houston, north of Houston, I lived with my aunt there for a year. I didn't know what was next, but I knew I was like, I'm done with Waco. I don't know what's next. So I lived with my aunt. This is my dad's sister. Um, I lived with her for a little, like around a year. And during that time, um, I worked out a lot. I got a job outside of the bartending scene. I, I was still drinking, but I was, I was significantly healthier because I got out of the bar scene. And as you know, the Waco bar scene is whew, a lot. Um, so <laughs> I got, yeah. So I was living in, in the woodlands and living with a family member. I was able to save up quite a bit of money and start. I, I traveled quite a bit. Um, I had my uncle and his husband, they were living in Germany at the time. So um, I just, I went, to Germany and they took me to uh, several surrounding countries and um, I actually spent a couple days alone in Paris um, to visit Jim Morrison's grave and hang out there for several days um, and I don't know if you're into astrology but this is like this is like the Saturn return when because you know Sat like, it takes Saturn like 28 29 years to go around the sun um, so they say that like your Saturn return, um, it brings these really big shifts. Like a lot of people have these really significant life moments between 27 and 29. Um, so I was very clearly in mine. Um, and when I got back from my Euro trip, <laughs> I literally, I was just like, fuck this, fuck Texas. I can't do this anymore. And I bought a one-way ticket to New York. Um, because my lifelong dream has been to write for Rolling Stone magazine and Rolling Stones in New York. So I was like, I guess I'm moving to New York. Like it was, there was something about leaving Waco, leaving Texas, seeing, seeing like six other countries, you know, just experiencing other cultures and other people. Like I was like, wow, there's so much more to this world. Like I'm next, like what's next, you know? And so I'm still yet to be published in Rolling Stone. It will happen one of these days. Um, but that that was the impetus 
of I was like, okay, I'm moving to New York. And I I did, and I've been here um since the summer of twenty fifteen. That's wild. So it sounds like it sounds like you were primed. The things were the time was right, the dominoes were set up, and this trip to Europe really gave you some perspective. Cause I've I've learned that a lot. Uh, about myself too. It's like the more people I surround myself that are different than me, yeah. The honestly, the smaller I feel on this planet. Like it just there's so much more I need to learn and grow and and uh, I, you know I, I I wish that for everybody that you can live in a different place for a little while, even if mm-hmm. it's just for a couple of weeks. You know what I mean? To like really submerge yourself in a different um, culture because it's so crazy how quite literally everything that you do normally is foreign right and so everything they do is absolutely foreign to you and just um i've noticed a lot of older cultures are so much friendlier and kinder to each other mm-hmm. and they have kind of this village mentality and i absolutely love that like we had a opportunity to go and stay with a, a friend in australia when he was getting married and like his family took us in and like we were one of theirs and then uh, they stuck us with the neighbors. These people didn't know us from Adam, and they just like took us in as their own. And I was like, that was a very humbling experience to see, you know, just kindness, you know, just being kind to all these other people. And um, would love did to your hear. Kids, did your kids get to experience that too, or was it just you and Christy? Uh, it was just Christy and I. They were still okay. pretty little, and doing a, a trip to Australia wasn't exactly on the top of my list of these little knuckleheads. That's like over a day of travel. It was just to get there. Yeah. It was a lot, a lot. That's Um, so cool that you guys got to experience that, though. For sure. For sure. But tell me about being in Germany versus, well, also Paris, because I'm sure Paris by yourself, I'm sure you did a lot of introspection. And you were talking about that was insane. Grave. I I know you're a rock fan. Yeah. I mean, I. I still can't. I still can't believe I like. I literally just went to Paris alone for three days and hung out at his at his grave. And I remember, like, I would send my my aunt pictures. You know, my aunt that I'm staying with. She was like, "There's a lot more to do in Paris than just hang out in a graveyard." <laughs> and I was like, "This is why I came here." Um. So I eventually I was staying in a hostel and I um met other you know young single people and we. I went to, I found these girls that are actually like they're from the Boston area and they were studying abroad and they had a weekend in Paris and we just happened to be hostel mates. So we we spent the day together in we went to the Louvre and did some some fun touristy stuff that I probably wouldn't have done. Um but I when I I remember when I took the train from uh, I was in from Germany into Paris. <laughs> I get off the train and I'm like, why the fuck did I do this? Like, I don't know any French. I don't know. Like, why did I think this was a good idea? (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I figured it out. I don't know. I just, I figured it out. Um, but I think that is ultimately what gave me the courage to move to New York is again, I just, I figured it out. Like, it was like, I guess if I can hang out in Paris without speaking any French, I could probably do New York. New York's a lot easier. Um, and I did. And I am. <laughs> yeah. So when you look back at Paris, it doesn't feel just uh, fun or special, but it actually, it sounds like it feels important. Like it was an it important was step. It was very important. That whole trip, like 
you know, everything is so, all the countries are so small there. So we're able to see, I was able to go to like six or seven countries in like two weeks. And it was very easy to do because it's all connected by train. And um, yeah, like, like you said, just learning about other places, meeting different people, hearing different languages. It really, like you said, like, I felt smaller and I liked that. Like I is like one of my favorite chili peppers quotes from snow, you know, the more I see the less I know. And that's it's, it was one of those kind of moments where I'm like, wow, I don't know anything. Like the, the world is so much bigger than, you know, Waco and, and California. Like I, what's, what else is there? And, And since I've traveled to many places and had, you know, I did yoga teacher training in Bali, um, spent over a month there. And that that was just such a cool experience to be somewhere else for that long. And um, I I don't. Yeah, I. I don't know why I'm just talking about travel now. No, no. I like to me. It's important because these things, whenever you're. I feel like when you're in the grind, you're in the rut. They, I mean, growth is possible for you, but it's not readily available. You know, and it doesn't happen fast. But I feel like when you transplant yourself to a new place and a new culture, there's so much growth that happens in you as like a person, as a human being. That to me, it yeah. just feels so special and important. Even just learning, like for me, learning public transportation, you know, like in different parts of Europe and riding the train throughout Paris like I was like wow this is this makes so much more sense like why do we drive cars everywhere the trains are so (laughs) much more efficient cheaper faster like that's one of the many things I love about living in New York now is I I haven't driven a car in eight years and I don't like anytime I hear someone talking about car stress I'm just like wow I literally forgot that that is a thing like that you have to deal with i have not thought about car insurance or gas or changing tires or oil changes i haven't like that's just foreign to me at this point all right so it's 2015 i'm tawny and i've decided i'm gonna move to new york do you like go on the internet and like find a place to live or do you literally just get a plane ticket and you're like i'm gonna figure it out when i get there so a little bit of both um I was a very naive 29-year-old or 29-year-old. Um, I get on roommates.com and quote unquote find a roommate, which is a scam. I bas- I wired a stranger a thousand dollars and that was my first New York experience. I hadn't mm. even gotten here yet. Um so that's why I said, fuck it, I'm just gonna buy a ticket and figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> That made way more sense. I was like, I just need to be there um, and I'll meet people. And that's exactly what I did. Um, I got into a two-week creative writing intensive at NYU. And um, it was... So for those two weeks, I was able to stay uh, in a dorm. So that's why I I I was like, should I go out there for a couple weeks, then come back and then like maybe set up? And I was like, no, fuck it. I'm just going to buy my one-way ticket i'll meet a roommate in the program or something and i did <laughs> i did <laughs> i met a roommate and um if i met lots of other people like me who just 
you know, pe- New York, L.A. is filled with people that are just sold everything and have a dream. Like as corny as that sounds, like that's just I met actors, writers, painters, like just these crazy artists who sold everything <laughs> to pursue this tiny little idea, you know? Hmm. I think that is amazing. So you went down there for creative writing. So was it before Europe? Was it after Europe that you're like, you know what, this writing thing, I'm, this is me. I'm going to do this. Like at what point in the mix did that come in? When I left Waco and also when I I finished college, um, I, I had a lot more headspace. I graduated college late around 28. Um, and I got back into writing because I wasn't doing homework anymore. So, um, I started to write and yeah, it just, it, I was like, oh yeah, like this, this is what I do. (laughs) You know, I just, I just haven't done this in a really long time, but it felt so, I was like, I missed this. This is, I am a writer. Um, and so I, you know, read some books about writing and and all of that. But ultimately, I was like, I I want to take classes, and I bought um, an issue of Poets and Writers magazine. Um, it's you know, this is funny. Um, I went to Barnes and Noble to buy a new the new issue of Billboard magazine because Jack White was on the cover, and <laughs> then I found out that Billboard is subscription only. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to get some magazine while I'm here. And it, uh, I was called to this Poets and Writers magazine. Um, and I bought that. And I, that's where I learned about the NYU writing program. <laughs> and I, and I found out like the deadline to submit was like in two days. And I was like, <laughs> shit. So I just stayed up all night and I wrote this horrible draft of something. <laughs> but I got in. Um, I think I got in because they needed bodies. I don't think the piece was that great. And I'm not just like being I I I'm I know my writing at that point in my life. It was not that great. Um, but it was good enough to get into this class, I guess. So um so that yeah, that's ultimately how the whole NYU thing happened. And that was yeah, that that was such an incredible experience. It was just two weeks of writing five days a week, like eight to five writing, writing classes, lectures, authors came to speak like it was really cool. Did it feel right? Did it feel like this is where I need to be? This is where I'm supposed to it, be? It felt right. But there was this air of imposter syndrome because mm. I was the only journalist and I didn't even know I was a journalist at the time, I guess. But like every it was a creative writing intensive. So it was mostly like memoirists and novelists and that kind of writing. Um, and I was like, you know, I had hot pink hair at the time. I feel like that's an important detail. <laughs> um, I was like this hot pink haired girl that just moved from Waco who's wants to write for Rolling Stone. Like I was definitely the only person there with that goal. (laughs) Um, But it was still writing, you know? So I still got so much out of it and ultimately um, helped me with, you know, the book and all the other writing that I'm doing. Mm. So you go there for two weeks, you find a roommate some point and you just make it happen, huh? 
make it happen. You know, get a day job and do that, do the grind, you know, That's- work a bunch of jobs and figure out like what you do to be a writer and do that. And I just figured it out. <laughs> The pull to be a writer is so strong with you. And you you said you started saying felt and then you didn't finish your sentence. So I'm curious oh. what's the what's the feeling it gives you when you're writing? Um it's a good question. Um you know how when children ask why? Like when they get to the age when they can ask why, why? And like everything you say, they still want to know more. Mm-hmm. I never grew out of that. And so for me, being a journalist, I get to ask why for a living. And I get to ask why of my friends and family, of people that I interview, of experts, of society, of culture. I get to really ask these questions so I can, you know, I guess the answer is that writing and asking why helps me make some sense of the world. Hmm. To, to ask why I like that. You know, something I learned um, when Christy and I were wedding photographers, believe it or not, we did that as well. I've We've done I a lot it. of things. We've done a lot of things. But uh, that was when I was especially socially awkward and anxious and I didn't like crowds. But when I had this magic camera in my hand, everybody was your friend. They would all... Mm-hmm do you know like if I asked them to do something they were totally cool and it gave me permission to interact with these people in a way that I normally would be so uncomfortable with and I was just thinking if you are a journalist and you get to ask why it's like this little superpower so that you get to ask why for a reason you're not just being some weirdo you know you actually got a, a purpose uh going yeah to that's be- a that's a great comparison that's a, that's exactly what it is and um it I can see how the camera can can definitely help with that and it gives you like you're there for a purpose like you're working but you can cut you can kind of shoot the shit with people a little bit but it's also like it's very low pressure socializing so Mm -hmm. i can see why that would appeal to someone with social anxiety yeah for sure do you feel like the journalism helps you connect with people like there's somebody over here that you would really like to talk to but you don't necessarily have a reason or something like that yeah yeah um I, my, my partner, Nick, it's, he, he teases me sometimes because like, I can't turn off being a journalist. Like if he, he's telling me like a very unimportant story, like something that happened on the subway or, and I'm like, I have so many questions about it. <laughs> like, I'm like, yeah, but what were they wearing? Which direction were, were you going? Which train was it on? And he's like, that this doesn't matter. Like, you're not writing an article about this. I just want to tell you about this thing that happened. Um, so it's like he lovingly teases me, you know, about that. And and my my friends are just, I think, used to it at <laughs> at this point. Um, and I've also had some, uh, I don't know, like headbutting. Because sometimes I would ask questions and people don't like that they don't know the answer mm. or they don't like their answer mm. and it brings up it makes them feel uncomfortable or, you know, and it's that's never my intention. Um, but I think that's why I, I, I don't think people really understand what journalists do and like how important the job is to to ask questions and to to get the facts. 
to and then to report them you know and it's like it's hard to do um and i think it's it's so important for us to whether you're a journalist or not i think we should all just ask more questions yeah yeah communication to me has been the key of like every relationship i've ever had or every relationship that worked i should say <laughs> um that's an important distinction yeah 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 that's uh the quickest way to to kill a, a connection with another human is just to you know not communicate your feelings adequately but you know it's it's also for me it's sort of a weird thing in that I am completely transparent. Like I will tell anybody anything at any point in time. So my brain says, oh, well, there's the opposite of that is true. So I can, I can ask anybody anything. And so I've had to learn not to ask too strange a question too quick, right? You, you don't let all the crazy out at once, right? You just kind of, you, you slip it out a little at a time. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely jive with people and I, I tend to do that really quickly. I like big talk. Small talk doesn't really work for me, but I I understand that small talk is a social contract, you know, that that we set this ground rule that I'm not going to attack you and and vice versa, but it's so boring. I can't stand it. It kills me. There's there's times that I appreciate small talk like when I'm at the dog park and like just letting our dog like I like that there's people I see like 3 times a day and I don't know their name. <laughs> but we know everything about each other's dogs and like I th- I like that um but there's also these moments of like when small talk isn't is really annoying like oh yeah like Mondays huh I'm like that that's there's nothing else you could have said yeah <laughs> you know? or it's hot out there bro we live in Texas of course it's hot yeah. out there it's like <laughs> yeah duh but yeah, like I've, 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 I've found an antidote to small talk. So when I find myself in those situations, I just ask a really weird question. Like, uh, so if you had a superpower, would you rather be invisible or fly? You know, or, you know, just so, you know, if you had to wrestle in something, would you rather be whipped cream or jello? I don't know. You know, it's just, it, yeah, I, don't I love that. About, yeah. What do well, people say to that? Uh, it's, it varies. It varies. It's always, you know what you different. could also ask? You could ask people like what would be on their writer if they were a, a performer. You know, like Mariah Carey has to have like green M and M's in her dressing room. You know, like what do you need in your dressing room when you're preparing your to perform at Madison Square Garden? <laughs> you well, know? answer that question, Tani. What uh, what do you have on your writer? Okay, you have to go first because I asked you. Oh, oh! I didn't realize. I thought you were just kind of putting that out in the universe. Uh, what do I have on my writer as something? Because I'm going to. It's on your writer. And yeah, yeah. Okay. What do I have on there? I'm going to say, uh, you have to have. Uh, I need a big red float, and uh, it's got you know vanilla ice cream, <laughs> and I want of course it cold. I want the can cold so that, but then I want to kind of stir it up so that it gets sort of melty, um, and then. What else do I want? I want, uh, I want silk underwear, and I want to walk around in, the, in my dressing room. Nice. And that's it. That's all. Hell that's yeah. all I'll be wearing. Yeah. What's I'm on your? I'm picturing. I'm picturing red. I don't know because of course, red like red silk with the big yeah. red float. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, that way I can just be as sloppy as I want. You won't know the difference. I love that. Okay. I think so. Mine is H E B tortillas. That my, sounds like a my, guilty pleasure. 
it's not guilty at all. It is a proud pleasure. Mm. Um, my mom still sends me care packages of H-E-B tortillas. Like, I always have a steady stock in the freezer. <laughs> when I go I, uh... home to Texas, I fill my suitcase with tortillas. And TSA is like, what are you smuggling? I'm like, it's literally tortillas. Oh, my God. Did you ever on the suspension bridge throw tortillas? On... I didn't. No, I know that was a thing. You never did it. All right. Well, maybe you really are in a true way, Cohen. I mean, I don't know. I heard you moved there at eight, so whatever. Yeah, but California is invading the, the state. I, exactly. I I was. Uh, I guess I was in California during that, or I was just self medicating when you oh. when you guys were throwing tortillas. Oh, I was. I was escaping to reality. Down. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we'll throw a little pity party over here. Guilt you into <laughs> it. Thanks, mom. Good God. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> so, um. You know, we had you'd mentioned your book. That was the whole thing that kicked off the author thing. And so it's all about being sober. And so at what point did you become sober? Was that uh, as you were in the airplane uh, to New York <laughs> and you're just, you know, completely reinventing yourself? Or where did that start? Maybe that's where I got the idea. Um, I so I moved here in June of 2015 and I got sober in November of 2015. So I, I did not drink here ver for very long. Yeah, um, just a few months. I had, yeah, it was just a few months. And I, you know, I had this moment where I was in a pub in Soho um, drinking with some friends after work. And we were all talking about how we don't have enough time to, you know, fill in the blank why, why we moved to New York. Like, so-and-so doesn't have time to go on auditions. So-and-so doesn't have time to paint. So, you know, like we all were just kind of commiserating. And my, I don't have time to write, you know? But something hit me when I walked out of that pub. I was like, I just spent four hours here talking about how I don't have time to write, but <laughs> I was drinking. And it just like, something clicked. And the next morning I was like, I'm not going to drink for a week. I'm not going to drink for two weeks. Um, and then my 30th birthday was coming up and I was like, what if I just don't drink for a full year and I blog about it? And so that's that's exactly what I did. I started a blog called sobrietyparty.com and I, we didn't have the term sober curious back then, but that's definitely what I was. I was just like, I was like, I don't want to give up alcohol forever, but I want to do this social experiment of like, what's going to happen if I don't drink for a full year? So I I did that. And in that year, I wrote so much because the blog held me accountable. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I met, I connected with other sober, sober, curious friends. Um, I was taking writing classes. Like I was just, I was in a very different headspace. You know, and uh, I was just I started therapy. I just really started to take care of myself in a way that I never did before. Um, and then I remember my 31st birthday was coming up and one of my friends was like, are you excited to drink on your 31st birthday? And I was like, I don't think I'm going to drink like I like I I'm not getting I'm not missing it at all. Like, what am I missing? Why should I drink? Like, look at all these great things that have happened since I since I took a break, you know? Um, and then, yes, so November 30th uh, will be eight years since I've had a drink. And it's been... Um, 
total, just life-changing, completely life-changing. I mean, it's been great, but it's also been really hard. Recovery is really hard, Um, but it's 100% worth it. I mean, it's also hard to live in denial and binge drink (laughs) and have hangovers every day and not treat your anxiety and depression. That's also hard. So um, I guess you just kind of have to figure out which uh which lane of difficulty you're going to choose and for me i chose getting help hey i have two questions for you one was when you got started were you just i mean were you just like white knuckling were you just kind of like hanging on to like was this the pull really strong and then two it sounded like it almost started like an experiment like in your head you were thinking i'm going to perform this experiment and it at what point do you feel like the switch flipped and you're like, this isn't an experiment anymore. This is my life now. Just kind of those two things. I would say that that's a great question. The experiment I think flipped when I started therapy and I learned because like for me, like those first few months were like, it was fun. You know, I was like, I'm not drinking. I'm going to do this. I'm going to write about this. And it was like a fun thing. And then the novelty wears off (laughs) and you go to therapy and you figure out why you use alcohol to drink it's a lot to unpack <laughs> and it's a lot to process so that was really the the pivot of like at i went into sobriety with the experimental attitude the sober curious attitude and then i realized i have some shit that i need to address so it was really like it was just really grounding, you know, and hu- I would say humbling. It was very humbling. I was just like, okay, there's some stuff that I've not dealt with. And instead of dealing with it, I just binge drank and did drugs and I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah. Um, And then the first part of your question, um, no, I mean, I, I wasn't white knuckling. I didn't do AA. I didn't do, a, I kind of created my own program, like, I got really into yoga therapy, like I mentioned, writing was a huge part of it. Um, And then I eventually found a peer support group that worked for me, but I tried AA and it didn't, it wasn't a good fit. But um, I would say the early sobriety was like, quote unquote, easy, because like I said, it was a fun game. And then, (laughs) and then the the reality settles and it's like, uh, so at first it wasn't necessarily like, um, like a dependence where your body was like craving it, you know, like, like calling Correct. out. Yeah, to I was. That's good. I wasn't. And it's like, I think it's, I love that question because I think it's important to acknowledge that you don't have to have this like cinematic rock bottom moment. You can just like, I, I was drinking until I blacked out like two or three nights a week. Yikes. Or I would, I would go like, I could go like a month or two without drinking, you know, but when I drank, it was very destructive and that that was my problem and for for years i thought i didn't have a problem because i wasn't drinking every day hmm. you know and um i'm glad you asked that question because i want people listening to know that you don't have to lose everything to change your relationship with alcohol or a substance you can change your relationship with it at any time hmm yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, I've, I've noticed hmm, some people, 
are different, you know, when they, when they drink and they think, ah, you know, this is who I am, right? This is how my peer group sees me. This is how my friend group sees me. You know, if I'm not doing this, who am I? You know, and it's, you know, a bit of ego death you have to go through, I, I suppose, in those respects, right? And that, that can be terrifying in and of itself. Like, who am I if I'm not the party girl or party guy? It is. That that's a hundred percent in. That's why I said, like, once I started therapy and the reality hit, I was just like, "Wow, I've been wearing a mask this whole time. Like, I put on this performance, mm-hmm. and figuring out who I was outside of that performance was really difficult. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, that pairing that with dating and relationships and that kind of thing was so freaking hard so like (laughs) that that's that's why I wrote this book is because I I had no idea how to date let alone have sex without alcohol you know like it was like if I'm if I'm performing in like my daily life just as a human like dating is like a joke you know so this is really the book that I needed when I was newly sober or even questioning my relationship with alcohol, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't think everybody uh, walks around calling themselves a sober sex expert. So was that probably a- not? Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like, I don't, I don't think I, cause I remember you saying you wanted to be in Rolling Stone, not be considered the sex expert. So that's yeah. a fascinating niche to find yourself in. And so hey, I've been, I've been binging your podcast. Um, and you're also a talented podcaster. I love listening to you. You keep things moving well. You have good questions. Um, Thank you. I'm not here to build up your ego. It's already, you know, we don't, that's not what this is about. Um, <laughs> but I have noticed that, uh, you know, you do touch on a lot of interesting subjects that I would have never even thought about. That's one of the things I really like here is that I get to peek inside of these little worlds that I don't know anything about because they have their own uh, their own nomenclature, like sober curious and stuff like mm-hmm. it's like, like it's just so fascinating to see kind of this little world over here that I that I didn't even know existed. And um, I don't drink; I never have drink, you know. So the idea of like trying to date without drinking is like it's what I'm accustomed to. So the idea yeah. of how that could be so uncomfortable for people is sort of like a foreign concept to me. So it it actually is is. I guess a curiosity to me. So I'm curious, what are like what are the major hangups people have when they think, oh, I've got a date, but I've got to do it sober? Like, I and I, I think this. I've heard you. I'm teeing you up, dude. I know the answer for, for a little bit, right? Because uh, I think you referred to it as liquid courage, right? And so, just tell me a yeah. little bit about that and how that all kind of ties together. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I was going to say is, um, you know, the really the thesis of this book is how to replace liquid courage with intrinsic courage, yeah. like really getting to know who you are outside of outside of alcohol. Um, so, you know, and I in the book, I talk about pop culture tropes, how liquid courage shows up on screen yeah. um, and then how that also impacts us as humans. Um you know, in general, but specifically when it comes to dating and relationships, um, you know, there's this, you know, for me and for a lot of the people that I interviewed, this reliance on liquid courage, which is, you know, just 
relying on a drink as this looking at this drink as this magical elixir who's going to make you more fun, more outgoing, um, more uninhibited in the bedroom, um, more social, all of all of these things that people often rely on alcohol for. Um, so it's really this exploration of liquid courage and reminding readers like, you know, chapter one is is literally called dating yourself. It's like it's how to get to know who you are without liquid courage, without alcohol, because you can't have a healthy relationship with someone else unless you unless you know who you are and you learn how to love who you are. Like that's a, am not the first person to say that. That's a, that, that is like a timeless cliche. But I write about that cliche through the lens of liquid courage mm. i think it's a cliche for a reason because yeah it is so absolutely true you know and something i found is this happens to me so common it's something i logically know and understand but until somebody says it in just the right way to kind of snap that puzzle piece into my brain it never clicks and so it's so funny how you may be saying the same thing a thousand people have already said but you say it in such a way that it really resonates with me, right? It, it hits me in a different way. And so I think it's always so amazing when people take the time to, you know, put their story on a page or, or, or put themselves out there because it's not exactly easy to be uh, vulnerable with the subject matter that you're talking about. I think that's really dope. Thank you. It's, it's like I said, it's like this is the book I needed when I was newly sober and had no freaking idea how to date be in a relationship without I didn't I didn't know how to do anything about alcohol you know like friendships family gatherings like it was just everything seemed to be just so boozy and um because I mean because it was because of the circle I was in you know but um it it it, it was time for a change <laughs> I mean I made that change and that's a, I, I I write a lot about in the book too and once you got sober did you lose any of your old friends or some of your family like so, i don't know who this tawny is anymore yeah that so it's it's interesting because i moved first um i moved before i got sober a lot of i don't know that i could have gotten sober if i stayed a bartender in waco hmm. realistically you know um so the friends that I grew apart from i grew apart from organically just because we weren't around each other anymore um, but I did have some people that were in my bartending scene that read my blog and just shit all over it. Sif. They just, they were haters. And I think because a, for a lot of, a lot of times, um, sobriety can be a mirror for some people and people treated it like, well, if Tawny quit drinking because she says she had a drinking problem and I drank as much as she did, then does that mean I have a drinking problem? And like, it can, it can be very confronting when someone, you know, gets sober, <laughs> especially someone that you drank heavily with gets mm -hmm. sober. So now I know that that's most likely where some of the, uh, haters <laughs> were coming from. Um, but at the time I didn't, and I was really hurt by it. You know, I was just, I was like, why, why would you say these mean things? Like, why would you say I'm making, people said I was making it up. People said I'm not really sober. People said I didn't really drink that much. I'm just like, I just, 
I ha- there's nothing that's just where that's where they were you know they were not they were not in the place to receive what I was writing about and that's fine now my my skin is a lot thicker and I, I don't let those things bother me as much um but it is a very common thing that people deal with in early sobriety um especially if they're getting sober in their old friend group like it it's so hard to make new friends as an adult it is so hard to you know to date without alcohol um which is why a lot of people keep drinking because the unknown can feel really scary but it you know i promise you're not the like if you're listening and you're just like you know how how am i going to make friends without alcohol like you will i promise you you will that's why peer support groups are so freaking important um even if you're sober curious i think having therapy or peer support someone to talk about this stuff with is super helpful mm, yeah for sure i i mean i know people who uh, are their own worst enemy so when they're concerned about something it just spirals in their head and yeah. getting literally out of your head and having it come out of your mouth and with another human can be so uh helpful thankfully mm-hmm. that's not one of my many maladies but uh, i know people who are <laughs> like that and it sucks but yeah i could definitely understand almost like the existential crisis or, or fear of you know if i become this other person you know how are people going to perceive me and yeah so i've been the sober guy for a really long time well my entire life uh and but i've been in sales for like the last four years now and it's funny because whenever i'm meeting with clients where do we always meet somewhere where you can have drinks and you know everybody's ordering their drinks and i just say i'll take a nice tea or i'll take a coke or i'll take a water and i've never had anybody question me about it it's like i'm not sure why people are so afraid of it you know and if well i say i in in past not with like those sort of like those customers or whatever i never had anybody question but i've had people ask me in the past and just like say oh i don't drink and that's it and it's never gone any further than that so but then again i'm a different you know i mean i don't exactly i don't know maybe i don't have the friendliest face uh i am kind of a big dude so (laughs) people don't tend to you know give me be you know grief or anything like that so uh maybe it's different for different people but i don't know just i never really seem to have a problem with it i think it's it's interesting to hear you say that um because it's like that that's something that i came across in my research a lot i was like a lot of people just don't drink alcohol <laughs> like whether it's for personal reasons religious health reasons medications like there's a there's a lot of reasons to not drink alcohol um and those of us who've used this substance to self-medicate for us, we're we can't wrap our heads around someone like you oh. <laughs> who, who never needed it. So, you know, it's and it's not that we needed it, it's that we felt like we needed it. Right. You know? Um and okay. it's and you know, there is a lot of research that shows that there most people that are in recovery from substance abuse um have co-occurring disorders meaning like they were self-medicating depression anxiety ptsd adhd um, autism and once they got their diagnosis then they realized you know oh that's why i was drinking it's very very common to to get sober and then get a proper mental health diagnosis now you know i i've been officially diagnosed with anxiety i take my lexapro every day and I'm a lot 
happier, <laughs> a lot healthier. Um, and that's, I, most of my friends that are sober, very similar. They got diagnosed with something, they're on medication and they're getting better now. And th when I say there is this fear of the unknown of like people, mental health is so stigmatized that people often don't realize the correlation between substance abuse, alcohol abuse, and these co-occurring co mental health disorders. And taking the time to get in, dig into your own brain is not always appealing, especially to people who don't have the tools and the vocabulary and the resources. So it can just be way easier to just have a beer with your friends than to really thoughtfully examine why you want that beer, <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. It's something I've learned about therapy um, the hard way through people in my family is unless somebody wants to change, wants to put in the work, therapy's not going to do anything for you. So it's, it's like you almost have to decide, I want to do this thing. This time is right. You know, and everybody, it seems like everybody I talk to that I don't know, that little spark that got them there is different, right? Which sucks because mm -hmm. there's no like formula. There's no playbook you can follow to get somebody there or help somebody there. It just sometimes, um, I think you earlier, you said that, uh, God, what was it? You had, uh, you'd walked out of a bar and just decided, yeah. you know, I wasted all this time. You know, I, I did, I don't need to do this anymore, right? It's like everybody's story is different i mean it, they may have similar patterns but they're different and it's like how do you find that yeah. spark yeah and it's i i tried to cut back on drinking and quit drinking so many times before that moment but it's like for me i needed to really pause and reflect on like i got really present with the fact that i spent four hours talking about how i don't have time to write <laughs> like <laughs> like for that reality really hit me you know um and it's different for everyone. It might be, you know, a lot of people get sober for their kids, you know, yeah. like they're like, I've I've missed so many practices because of my drinking and I just can't do this anymore. Or being a kid, helping out with their parents, caretaking for loved ones or wanting to go back to school. Like there's just there's so many reasons, but it whatever the reason is, it ultimately has to be because you want to be healthy. You know, you have to want to be better. You can't get sober for someone else. Like mm -hmm. your children can be the reason that you want to be better, but you ultimately have to be better for yourself. And that is something that we're not taught <laughs> inherent. We're not in. We don't know that inherently, and we're not taught that in school. So unless you just happen to read an article about it or have parents who are into mental health, how the hell are you going to know that? I know, I know. So much of that stuff is like a mystery. That's you know, it's it's almost like a like legend or you know a myth where it's passed from person to person. And if you just don't happen to talk to the right person, how are you gonna get that? But you you said the uh, the buzz phrase of the the last few years in mental health, and I think that gets a lot of a lot of overuse, a lot of lip service. But yeah, I think with people who've really brushed against it or understand what it can look like. I mean, like suicide rates for people, you know, kind of, you know, 19, 18 to 30 right now. It's just, it's crazy. It's crazy. 
like how many people were losing like what do you call that like a permanent solution to a temporary situation it's tough it's it's permanent solution to a temporary problem yeah they are um yeah it's an epidemic i mean and it's also it's it's quite problematic in texas particularly i've so far this year i've had um five or six it's sad that i i have lost count um five or six friends that have died either from uh, taking their own life or substance abuse you know like unintentional overdose cirrhosis of the liver you know these are people my age Golly. like 40 and, and under um that have died because of their mental health um and I've I was I was in a really dark place processing all of this naturally. Um, and I was just like, what's why is this happening in Texas? Like, why is why what is going on? And and also my generation, why are so many millennials self-harming? And why are why are, is this happening in Texas? And I learned that Texas mental mental is basically a mental health desert. There's there's a significantly um disproportionate rate of people who want help for their mental health and and resources for the mental health um so texas needs significantly more therapists more social workers more psychiatrists um and more substance abuse counselors there's just not enough so that's one part of it but there's also you know i'm sure there's a lot more but these are the two i've come up with is that and then also that you know in texas you're just taught to pray it away and your problems will be solved instead of giving someone tangible solutions to take care of themselves. So those those two things alone, and I'm sure there's significantly more, are literally killing people. Hmm. Yeah, and um, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but you said pray, and it made me think pray the gay away. You know, a uh-huh. lot of our LGBTQIA plus kids down here um, are really getting crushed and uh, are... Uh, conservative areas here don't really foster like care and compassion for those people. And, you know, I've heard of places where like, you know, smart people are leaving, going somewhere else. They call that a brain drain. I, I, I don't know what the the term is right now, but we're having like a, a social drain where I mm. know people, literally people that are in that community that are leaving to go to states that are more friendly to their kids, right? Yeah. Or their family members and stuff like that. And it's like, what does that mean for everybody left here? It sucks. Like you said, it's becoming a desert and it almost feels overwhelming. Um, like what what can you do about that stuff? You know, it's just it I mean terrifying. Ultimately what you can do is donate to nonprofits in Texas that are aimed to help. Um, donate to, you know, the Trevor Project, which mm-hmm. is an LGBT nonprofit. Um volunteer i mean there's there are things we can do um and it's also like having these conversations with your kids having these conversations with other parents like it's it sucks because you're in the position of like do i just sit around and let these people say racial and transphobic slurs or do like do i stand up and and be the change (laughs) you know like it's it's and i know it's really hard it's a really tough place to be in um because people 
the people that are are saying these hurtful things that are trying to um that are actively harming the young LGBT community aren't really trying to learn new things. They don't really care what you have to say. So you ultimately have to put your oxygen mask on first and take care of your kids. And that's really all you can do. But ultimately, as an ally, as a as a straight white dude, you also have to like do some uncomfortable shit for us too. <laughs> for sure, man. And that's what that's what Christy and I do all the time. Yeah. Um my friend Adrian started a nonprofit down here. I'm gonna go and plug her stuff. It's like uh, pride100.org, I think. And so the idea is you get a hundred people together in your small area and you basically put together a bunch of LGBTQ, you know, whatever letter under the rainbow, it happens to be like it's a nonprofit or a cause that will actually help you locally. And all those 100 mm. people donate to that person, that charity, whatever it happens to be. And you do that three times a year. I think it's like, I love so that because cool. it like it's helping me in my little tiny community. Maybe yeah, maybe somewhere like in New York, you know, that'd be a drop in the bucket. But in Podunk town that I live in in Texas, that's a huge thing, mm-hmm. right? It can make a, a very big change. And so I I love the idea of doing what you can, planting those seeds. To me, that's that's a big one because so many of the little kids around here are inheriting these thoughts and feelings from their parents. Yes. And I know. And like being different, read, looking different. Read books to your kids that are about different cultures. Like if you can't travel with your kids, read about different cultures, like take them to different experiences, take them to drag story time, like let them see that <laughs> like, like it like there's let them see and meet all different types of people, you know, like you you don't even have to. Like, I think that's something that my mom did really well is, you know, she never used the word feminist. She never used she we didn't, quote unquote, talk politics, but she made sure that I was exposed to all of these different types of people. And I really appreciate that because I was able to come to my own political awakening and feminist awakening on my own. You know, whereas like if mom was saying the word feminist a lot, I probably would have had some like rebellion against it or something. Um, so, and it's, it really scares me. Like my, so much of my heart is in Texas. It really scares me that I really don't feel safe there when I, like, when I go home, um, just like being a, being a bi person, being like all of my shirts usually have some political statement on them. Um, and then I see these just horrifying posters and signs and bumper stickers and i'm just yeah. like wow like wow y'all still talk like that okay mm-hmm. but it's also like i think it's an important reminder to me because uh, i can be in my own little echo chamber here you know i need to also i need to remember the most of the world is not like new york city <laughs> or at least most of the country is not like right. new york city you know i do need to remember what it's like to live in Waco or you know small like small small towns that where these kids are being surrounded by their parents thoughts and mentalities yeah I mean when you're surrounded by a thousand voices saying something even if you don't necessarily believe in it you don't want to buck it 
right? As like a little kid, that's, that's scary. Right. And I, I get that. Um, but how do you, you know, you just have to continue being, you know, a little, a little source of change, right? Like kind of a beacon. So, yeah. I mean, it's like, I ultimately, I understand when, if someone does not understand what it's like to be trans, someone who's never met a trans person. Yeah. I can understand why, like you might feel certain ways if you've never met someone and seen that had a conversation and seen that we're all just people. I can see why you might have some prejudice, Um, which is why I encourage like, if you live somewhere where you, you don't have a trans friend, like watch TV shows with trans characters, read books with trans characters, like they're out, like er, just expose, expose um, as many different types of cultures as you can. Yeah. Remarkably, they're human, just like you. And believe it or not. Oh, yeah. Gasp. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. And also to that end, I don't have the want or energy to care about what anybody else is doing. As long as you're not hurting anybody else, I don't care. Why do people care so much? It's like, just let them live their life. I don't, it's like you're and, spending all this energy on on this hate. Instead, you could be, instead of spending this four hours on hate, you could be spending it on writing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. there it, it your, is. Nice. Pour it into your passions. Like Put it somewhere where it'll actually be like useful or beautiful for the world or anything. Even if you're just like playing golf or playing cornhole in the backyard, I don't care. It's it's, it's ridiculous. It takes too much time. Anyway, I've diverged down a down a rabbit hole as I am wont to do. I love doing that stuff. But we were talking about your book. Let me bring it bring it back to the book. So you have written your magnum opus. Um, you're gonna you're gonna publish this thing. It's uh it's pre sale right now. You're recording the audio book currently, right? In a couple of weeks, yeah, it's uh, it's coming up. All right. I'm, yeah, it's it's on pre-order, and pre-order is until I became an author, I did not know how important pre-orders were, um, but they really they help publishers know that there is a uh, demand for the book. That it helps them know how many to print. Um, it also helps local bookstores know that they need to carry your book if they get a bunch of pre-orders for a particular book, they're likely to order more and stock them. Um, and the more pre-orders that a book gets, they're more likely to end up on a bestseller list. That's cool. That's cool. So, so is there a pre-order thing for your audiobook as well? Yeah. So you could go to um, any anywhere you get your audiobook. So if you do, you know, Audible, you can just, you can, you can look up um, either my name or the the title of the book, Dry Humping, um, and just hit pre-order the audio. All right, because like, like I told you earlier, you were like, oh, would you be interested in a copy of the book? I said, absolutely not, because I never read <laughs> yeah. books. But if you if there is an audio version, I'm going to go and I'm going to pre-order the audio book version here momentarily. I will definitely do that, and I will listen to that. I have no doubt I will enjoy it. That is so yes, cool. Yes, yes. That is so cool. So... The book's going to come out. You're going to be a smashing success. You're going to help tons of people. You're going to get amazing feedback. Uh, they're going to ask you. They're, they, they're going to beg you to write your Rolling Stone article. What's the yes. next thing? Like, once you do that, what's the next thing? Um, You know, I, ha I have a couple things that I'm working on um, that 
I will share more in a future date. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I really want, in, but for the sake of the the book, I really want to turn it into a docu series of some sort. That would be really exciting for me because I think the subject of liquid courage and sober sex and dating are super important. Obviously, I wrote literally wrote a book on it. Um, but I'm also aware that some people just don't read books, <laughs> and <laughs> I want I want to use the um, I want to talk about this subject as much as I can. So, you know, I talk about it on the podcast, but it's like not necessarily the theme of my it, the podcast is you know me and one of my best friends we co-host a podcast about recovery. Um, it's not necessarily about sober sex, but it is about recovery. Um, so I would, yeah, I would like to see where else I can take it, like documentary, docu-series, maybe it becomes its own podcast kind of thing. Like that's that's something that my agents and I are, are working on. That's cool. You're going to do a Netflix Netflix adaptation? That would be the dream. Netflix, HBO, Dude, whatever. So like, cool. yeah, just like, because there's, there's so much research that I didn't get to put in the book. You know, there's just, I'm, there's so much. Um and I, I have a weekly advice column called Beyond Liquid Courage, where people submit questions about sober sex and dating. So that's also available. That, you don't have to pre-order that. That's just now. That's just now. <laughs> you can just get it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tani. Well, we are right here at the end. So this is usually where I like to ask people, what would you, uh, or rather, you know, how would you have people interface, connect with the internet, anything you want to pump? Obviously, we want them to go and pre-order the book. Yeah, pre-order the book. I please um, pre-order from a local bookstore. Um, and if you do audiobooks, um, highly recommend looking into Libro because thirty percent of every book purchase goes to the local bookstore of your choice. Oh, that's cool. Um, so um, Audible is. Um, Amazon just does really not care about writers. They care about money. Um, and I would love if you could pre-order from a local bookstore who people support businesses that do care about books, um, that do care about writers and amplifying voices. Um, and you can also request a copy from your library. That's a, a fun fact. Um, audio and a ebook and the physical book you can request from your library. Um, so yeah, I think just if you could pre-order dry humping, check out my column Beyond Liquid Courage and on um all of the social medias Tawny M Laura. All right. And I know you've got um uh tawnylaura.com and you've got a link tree on there. I'll put that I'll put that in the bottom, right? Cuz that has all of the things, correct? That has everything. Yeah, that's a lot easier like if I have events coming up, um the column, how to pre-order, all of that, the podcast, everything. All right. How about Instagram? You want people popping on that? Yeah. Hop on. <laughs> Do the thing. <laughs> yes. Uh, Tawny M. Lara for Instagram and and uh, all of the things. That's where I, you know, you if, if you want, like, if you want to know, if the if it is urgent that you know everything that I am up to at <laughs> like on a daily basis, that is where you should go. <laughs> well, it absolutely, of course, it is. So everybody is going to surge there immediately. It's the best place to be on the internet. <laughs> I'm not going to argue <laughs> with you, but okay. Uh, so, uh, Tawny, thank you so much for taking this time. I actually, you know, what's ironic is um, yesterday 
Yesterday was the four-year anniversary of us going to New York, the first and only time we've ever been to New York. Yeah, and then I saw you. And you saw us. That was yesterday. What are the odds? So right there. Oh, my God. That was us randomly running into each other in New York City. That is so freaking cool. Like, (laughs) that. I think you... You or Christy, did you say my name or did I notice? I saw you, You fool. guys, you saw me. I saw that like, hair. Tawny? I saw that short, tawny hair bouncing her away. Yeah, the curls. Um, that, you know, it's so funny because it was in Times Square and I'm yeah. never in Times Square. And I was like, it was so, it was so cool. I loved that so much. So it was kismet. It was meant to be that we were going to talk to each other today. Yes. And I was supposed to be in Times Square on july 18th of 2019 apparently (laughs) all right let me hit stop on all this stuff real quick